morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning in person and those who are live streaming. We're studying the church and we're working our way through what the scriptures teach about the church. And we're going to be studying this for a while and now we're in, in the middle of looking at what the Bible gives us as markers of a New Testament church. And this week, we're looking at the mark of the gospel, the measuring stick of the gospel. The notes are available for you online, so if you go to MitchJolly.com, you can scroll down and see a link to the live stream, as well as notes for you to work through this morning, but also as you gather in your small groups. The gospel is central for us. And I want to say something that may be a little uncomfortable on the front end. And it may be slightly corrective. And and that can be a very good thing. And it's this. The gospel is not something we do. Okay? You may often hear people say, just do do the gospel. Um, The gospel is not something we do. When we assert that we need to go do the gospel which particularly in our day and time insinuates that we need to go and, and live something out in the public square. And that, that's not untrue. We need to live in the public square. And we need to act like Christians in the public square. But when we assert that we need to go do the gospel, it's confusing and likely not very helpful. You and I can say that the gospel of the, is, is the story of what God has done, what God is doing, and what He is going to bring to completion on that particular day. We can say that the gospel, and we should say, that this gospel story is the true story of absolutely everything. And thus it's the message we preach that will then transform people from death to life. Now today, we're not going to talk about that work of transformation. We're going to talk about transformation next week. And the week after that, we're going to talk about the implementation of evangelism. So we're breaking these marks down. So the gospel will transform. We're going to talk about that next week. The week after that, we're going to talk about your task and mine of evangelism. But today, we're just putting the microscope down on the mark of the gospel message. And it is the true story of absolutely everything that is. And it is the story, the narrative that will transform people. It's the message we preach. This is why you can't do the gospel. The gospel is a message that must be proclaimed with the mouth. And if you go back a few weeks, we talked about preaching as a mark of a New Testament church. Why? Because God is a proclaimer. God speaks. God preaches. He proclaims. He proclaims himself and he proclaims his message. So preaching, speaking is something we have as image bearers of God that points to the reality that we are made in his image. We are like him in that way. Therefore, the gospel is a message that we as image bearers of God are to proclaim with our mouths. Does that make sense? Tracking? You can move your head, right? You you can move your head. We get it. It's a message. It's the true story of everything that is. It's a message we proclaim. It's a very powerful message. Therefore, the story of the gospel is also how we are discipled then as followers of Jesus. At that point, we believe the good news. We've been transformed. The gospel becomes the framework 
from which we understand and interpret everything in the world around us. And it's infinitely deep in its facets, its nuance, its application, and its glory. You're never, ever, ever going to outgrow the gospel. Mark 1, 14-15 says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So it's God's gospel, it's His message, it's His good news. And saying... So here's what Jesus said the gospel of God contains. The time is fulfilled. Meaning God has been working up to this. God hasn't just been arbitrarily hanging out in the universe. He's been providentially moving history to this point in time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now that passage in of itself deserves a lot more unpacking than we're going to do for it this morning. But the fact that God has been working on this for a specific period of time and working for a specific plan is astounding. In other words, God has been doing this since the beginning of time. He's been working up to this point that Jesus would come and fulfill this plan in His person and His work is astounding and glorious in and of itself. This is not new news. The time has been fulfilled. Meaning... God's been working this, and this isn't new news. It's good news. Remember, last week we talked about biblical theology. This message is written all over the text of the Old Testament. This isn't new news. It's good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God near. He's bringing the reign of God into play and into practice in His person and His work. And He says, repent and believe this good news. This message of good news, this gospel, is to be believed upon. And believed upon by turning away from counter-newses, counter-messages that stand opposed to this good news. So it leaves us with this question, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Well, if you've been around Three Rivers long enough, you know these letters, KDSC. KDSC represents the, the DNA, the spiritual DNA of our fellowship. Kingdom, disciple, society, church. The gospel of the kingdom makes disciples who function inside their vocational domains of society. And from there, in preaching the gospel, making disciples, Jesus builds his church. Well, today, we're going to focus on the K. And for the next couple Sundays, you're going to be seeing this shirt. And and we're going to drive down on the K a little bit. And then it's practice on Evangelism Sunday. We talk about evangelism because this shirt, even in and of itself, is a tool to help you in your evangelism. We'll talk about that more later, but we're going to drill down into K a little bit today. K, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the reign and rule of Jesus Christ is the message Jesus preached. And it be and it can be summarized, as Pastor Justin said just a few minutes ago, in four scenes that the Bible presents for us. Four scenes. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, what I'm not going to do this morning is tell you how to get this message out. We're going to work on that the next couple of weeks. What I want you to have a clear picture of today is the big word, alert, the meta-narrative of the gospel. Meta-narrative means an overarching story that gives definition to everything. It's the narrative that defines everything that is, which is why I said earlier the gospel is the true story of everything. Right, And once you begin to frame the gospel like that, you begin to see how it begins to deal with absolutely everything. 
and provide you a framework for interpreting everything. And, and I'm going to say something right here that's totally like, because uh, my son and I've been talking about this a little bit, and he doesn't have an opportunity to respond. He's passionate and opinionated like his father, right? And so there's an entire generation of people, and I'm going somewhere with this, so hang tight. Don't talk, Jolly. Here we go. People are fascinated with Jordan Peterson, right? Absolutely fascinated with Jordan Peterson. And, and they talk about him being on this spiritual journey, and maybe he is. And I, I don't deny that this, this brilliant psychologist is on this spiritual journey. Fine, that's good. I was listening to a lecture he did, a Bible series. Anybody, Peterson podcast? Okay, that's good, y'all. All right. And, and people are like, he's on this spiritual journey, and like five minutes into the first episode in this biblical podcast, it became clear to me something that I hope others recognize. He's brilliant. I like listening to him. I like reading him a little bit. Right? So, I have other critiques, but that's not the point to criticize Jordan Peterson this morning. Here's my point. It became very clear his meta-narrative is psychological evolution. And that man is evolving psychologically. And somewhere, these Bible myths have a place in our psychological evolution. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you can see that. Like, he's not a Christian, and he's not operating as a Christian, nor using the discipline of studying the soul inside a Christian framework. He's trying to fit these myths that he says has value inside a psychological evolutionary meta-narrative. And when you understand that, it starts making sense. Well, of course he would believe that, because he thinks we're billions of years old and that we are... Creatures even says we're animals who have evolved psychologically. These plays and these stories play a role for us. I'm like, maybe you see a little glimmer of light right there because you, you're peeking at God's creation and you saw a glimmer of light. But brothers, you're in the dark. Okay? And so here's my point. The, the gospel is a meta-narrative. He's got a meta-narrative of psychological evolution that causes him to see things in a certain way. As Christians, we have a meta-narrative. The Bible calls it the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And it becomes the framework by which we interpret everything. Does that make sense? So part of our discipleship is learning to fit this piece right here because we see it in created order and we've got to find how it fits. Or maybe it's broken. And it doesn't fit neatly because the curse of sin has cracked it in half. And we can't see how it fits into this shape in the meta-narrative of the gospel. But until that framework of the gospel is in place, you're going to struggle in the public square. And I have a feeling that's one of the reasons our evangelism is weak. Is we, we have a truncated view of the gospel and therefore we have a truncated gospel presentation that doesn't speak to that broken piece that Peterson's made sense of for everybody else. Make sense? And so what I want you to see this morning is the meta narrative of the gospel is the message that we preach and it is so absolutely powerful. It will yank blind people into sight. It will do what Peterson's trying to do psychologically. It will actually make happen in reality for all of you. For the whole person. That makes sense? It is that powerful. And you see it in four narrative scenes in the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation. God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This triune God. He is God and there is absolutely no other. And He made everything. 
And he made it good. There's nothing in created order that's innately bad. Everything he created is absolutely good. And he made it on purpose for good purposes. And as the apex of creation, God made mankind in his image, male and female. And he made them as co-regents of his to rule over, manage, multiply in the earth. And the good created order. And he gave it to them to manage. And there's a little note here in my notes. I wrote note, colon. So it says note, colon. So note this. Jesus' parable of the talents is intimately connected to created account Genesis 1 and the creation mandate. He gave creation to mankind as co-regents to fill the earth, multiply it, and live in it. Right? Multiply. Subdue, fill the earth, multiply, right? That's creation mandate. Jesus, in his parable of the talents, hands out five, two, and one. And what did they do? They went and multiplied those talents and brought them back and presented them to the master. And the person with the one talent clearly didn't know the master because he misinterpreted the master as being harsh and mean. So he hid his talent in the ground, did nothing with it. Jesus is connecting this parable of the talents. When you read it in light of everything in Genesis, you begin to see Jesus preaching from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And he's telling us, he has given to us a task in the earth to fill it, subdue it, multiply in it. And if we believe that he's not good, we will hide it in the ground. But if we believe the master's good, we will go take risk with that message. And we will lay it out in the public square. And we will see multiplication. And we'll come to him on the last day and present it. Say, Lord, you gave me five, here's ten. Well done. Good job. You trusted me. Right? So, note, this, this God creating us in his image and sending us to fill the earth and multiply in it is connected to the parable of the talents, which is connected to evangelism and great commission work. That's application. And I said I wouldn't go in there, but I wrote it as a note and need to share it with you. So, in creation, God then made us knowing him and mankind being known by God. And there was uninterrupted relationship with God. Fall. You don't have to look far and wide to realize something's wrong. It's bad wrong. Right? Just wait a few minutes. And click Twitter. And scroll. And you will find very quickly something is wrong. Something is bad wrong. Why is creation so out of whack? God made it good. How did it get so broken? In God's good created order, an intelligent creature decided to rebel and incite mankind to join in that rebellion by bringing into question God's good intentions, bad theology, and leading mankind into disobeying God's word. God told them that if they disobeyed, there would be death. But Adam and Eve rebelled, and instantly death began to ruin everything. It ruined creation to man, man to creation, creation to creation, Man to man and mankind to himself and herself. All of it broke. But did God leave it that way? Well, that's where the story of redemption, the scene in the narrative of the gospel of redemption comes in. And we're going to look at John 3.16 particularly. But I want to kick redemption off with 2 Timothy 3.14-17 to highlight what we said last week. And we're going to talk about this in two weeks when we talk about evangelism. Because you can share the gospel from anywhere in your Bible with just a little bit of effort. Okay? 
Listen to 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What sacred writings? The Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Can the Levite and the concubine at the end of Judges point me to Jesus? Yes, that story can point you to the redemptive work of Christ. He just said it right there. The question is, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are you able to take that narrative of the Levite and his concubine and look at it and stick it over into the narrative of the gospel and see where it fits and pull out all the brokenness of man and relationship and point us to the husband, the one who is winning a bride for himself and see how he will treat. Can a negative example actually point us to the example? Yes, it can. And you'll never know where that will land in the heart of somebody you're talking to if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. We could literally learn the gospel from anywhere in the Bible. But this morning we're going to use John 3.16 just because. Because likely all of you know it. I know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish. But have eternal life. Let's take it phrase by phrase very quickly. For God. Right? For God. In case tomorrow you got to go to work. And you actually get to have a gospel conversation. Just rip off everything right here. Just steal it. It's right out of the Bible. If you need to, read it. They don't need you to be smooth. They need the message. They need the narrative to be put in place. So that they can begin to put pieces into place. And the Holy Spirit will rip them from darkness to light at that point. For God. Redemption begins with God. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. It's plan A. Salvation is God's idea because He loves Salvation begins with God. For God so loved the world. Redemption is rooted in the unconditional love of God for His glory, His love for creation and created beings, and its restoration from the curse of sin, and their restoration back to a relationship with Him and with each other inside created order, bringing Him glory and bringing Him praise. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God is triune in nature. He eternally exists as three distinct persons, yet one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He gives as the payment for sin Himself. He pays what mankind can never pay. The Father sends the Son by whom all things were created. And He takes on flesh like we have. And He is born like we were. And He lives a perfect sinless life and is rejected, crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers by the sovereign decree of God in order to pay for the sin of man, past, present, and future. He was buried and on the third day He rose from the dead, having presented His own blood as the covering for sin because the blood of bulls and goats cannot clear the conscience of man. Jesus entered the more perfect place in heaven not made with hands and he entered by the means of his own blood and he presented it to the father and the father received it and he is able to save completely those who come to him glory are you saved right that 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 should stir your soul can i just be frank if that, if, if Hebrews, that's like Hebrews, if that doesn't stir your soul, I kind of wonder, is your soul awake? Because if, if that part of redemption is accurate, guess what? My sin 
not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. (laughs) And it is well with my soul. That's why it's called good news. This is exceptionally good news. This is incredibly good news. So that whoever believes in Him, this amazing payment and cure for the curse of sin is available for anybody who would dare simply to put their faith in Jesus by turning from the curse of sin and coming under the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. If you'll believe, He'll take all that and give it to you. Isn't that awesome? So that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If we don't believe, we will perish. Not cease to exist. We are beings who are going to live on forever. Perish means that if we don't turn to Jesus, we will be condemned forever under the righteous judgment of God on sin because we are sinners because of the choices Adam and Eve made. We don't have to do that though. Jesus is the way we can come underneath the good love of God. Those who believe in Jesus won't perish in just condemnation but are transformed into new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are first fruits of the new created order that Jesus is bringing in the world. We are transferred from darkness to light. Colossians 1.13-14 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He's caused us to see the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6 And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, Satan, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's caused us to see. And then finally, he's given us eternal life, which is to know God. John 17, 1-3 says, When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's John three sixteen. Unpacked the gospel message. What does Jesus do in that? Well, creation, fall, redemption. And restoration. Jesus' sacrifice saves people, but it also restores created order. Romans 8, 18 to 25 tells us that this created order is groaning, longing for the revealing of the sons of God that it itself may be fully and finally redeemed. We've already read 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but it reminds us That the redeemed people on the earth are the first fruits of the whole new created order. What Isaiah 65 promises is fulfilled finally in Revelation 21 and 22. And when Jesus saves individuals, we are the first fruits. Like, you know what first fruits are? Like, if in spring, things start budding again and pollen goes everywhere and you start sneezing and going crazy. But that pollen is coming off of flowers on fruit trees. And, and, and those flowers turn into things like apples and they turn into things like oranges, right? And those first plants, that's a first fruit. 
What's happening? Life is happening in that tree. God has caused created order to spring. And it's coming. And things are living. And it's producing fruit. And those first fruits are the promise that there is more to come. The Bible uses that language of first fruits to talk about what we give to the Lord in our sacrifice and offering and believing that He's got more on the way. So we give first because He's going to give more, right? And so when the Bible speaks of us being first fruits... Saved people are the first fruits of the promise of God to save all of created order. Isn't that cool? You are evidence that God is going to transform all of creation. Isn't that wild? Absolutely astounding. Are you like in Jesus? Like, I know we're Southern Baptists, but dad gum, man. Like that that ought to fire you up. Well, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the message that'll save the world. That's the meta-narrative that will transform people. So what are we going to do with it? Application number one. We have people who are attending, praise God, who have looked, they're looking for Jesus and they're in small groups, meeting in homes. They haven't come in this room, likely may never come in this room. But they're meeting with the church as they meet off campus. And they're hearing this morning, and yes, I'm talking about them. And yes, I know who you are because I'm praying for you by name. That the evangelistic work of other people who've reached out to you and shared with you Jesus would have its full and final effect. That if you've heard this message this morning, what God promised Ezekiel that he would take out a cold, dead heart and put in a live new one is happening right now. Isn't that cool? And that he would put his Holy Spirit in us and cause us to love his way and live in it. And people are hearing this message. So if you've heard the gospel this morning, I want to invite you. It's real simple. Ready? Justin read it this morning from Romans 10. Believe. Believe. If you believe that, you will be saved. The first fruit of created order being redeemed. So that's the first application. Believe the gospel and be saved. Two. I just stated it straight out of Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, as you received Him, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The gospel is how you evaluate everything and where it fits just as Jesus intended it to fit. So as you received Him, so now live in Him. This is, this is Paul spattering throughout his writing that the gospel is a meta-narrative that you live in. It's the message we preach and it's how we are discipled into knowing God. Here's an illustration for you. When you're a child, you probably played the shapes game, right? I still like the shapes game. It helps me. And a shapes board has all kinds of shapes cut into it. Stars, squares, circles, rhombozoids, whatever, shapes, all these shapes. And they have blocks that are shaped like those shapes. And we take them and we put them in the shape. And, you know, maybe when you're young, you're trying to put a square peg in the round hole. Like we say, that's even some some of our pop culture language when we talk about something that doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit. And we keep working until we find where that thing fits. We get the lifelong joy of being discipled by the gospel and learning how to fit the shapes of the world around us, including us, into the narrative that God created in the story of the gospel. And the good news about that illustration is that we get to pick up pieces like our soul. And through good research and writing and solid people, we can look at it and see, man, 
according to this, it should fit like this, but it doesn't quite fit because, oh, it's broke. Well, gosh, how's it going to get fixed? Oh, Jesus promises to do that. And then he starts doing this work of transformation. And next thing you know, it starts to fit because Jesus is transforming it and, and making it new. And what we begin to do is all of life is a journey of letting the gospel reveal to us in the Bible, teach us how to fit everything into its right place and created order. And check it out. You don't need to go to unbelievers to figure that out. It's in the manual. And it's not in a chapter and verse. It's in the story. Which is why I know you get sick of me saying this. Spend some time reading Tolkien and Lewis. They will teach you in good fictional writing how to read the story of the gospel like a kid. And when you can read it like a kid, the most complex things will start to fit. Because it's made for kids to understand. Jesus said so, which is why he welcomed the children and rebuked the disciples for not letting the kids get to it. Does it make sense? So we get to play with created order and bring it under the rule of Christ. We get to also have the discerning task of, of observing how the curse has broken these shapes and, and what needs to happen. The meta narrative of the gospel begins to answer questions like origin. Where did we come from? How did all this come about? It answers questions of meaning and purpose. What am I for? What's that for? What's that for? What's that for? It answers questions of ethics. What's right? What's wrong? It addresses ends, destiny, where are we headed, what are we going toward. And as you begin to live that out, you realize the gospel is infinitely deep. And if you have grown past it, you've grown into another message that is not the gospel. Understand that the rest of your days will be growing into understanding and knowing how God works and how He defines things and how I get on His page as a co-regent and ruler and created order. Two more applications, then we're done. Understand. Three Rivers Church, understand. We all have a gospel mandate in the person of Christ, in the narrative of the gospel, to preach this message and call people to faith in Jesus. Now listen, there's not a chapter and verse that says that. Maybe you can squeeze it out of the Great Commission. I would say you probably can. But the basis of number three here is not the Great Commission. It's the narrative of the gospel. It's the fact that all of us are created in the image of God who's a communicator and a speaker. And he speaks a message and calls us in the creation mandate before sin to be his co-regents, to go and fill the earth, subdue it, work in it, and bring it under his reign and his rule. And he sends us out. The Garden of Eden was launching pad, not hangout place. Three Rivers Church is launching pad, not hangout place. Right? And because that's the nature and character of God, and we're made in His image and called by the gospel to Him, we are to obey Him. And part of obedience is seeing that I have a mouth with a tongue and vocal cords and the knowledge to understand the gospel if I've been saved by the gospel. And I have a task of preaching that. And how you see that lived out in Acts is Acts chapter 11. They're just some guys. They don't even have names. Luke called them some guys. 
and those some guys went about preaching the gospel. And you get to Acts 13, and there's a church called Antioch. Guess how Antioch got there? Because those some guys, not the apostles, not Paul, some dudes went about preaching the gospel. Jesus saved people. They started gathering together, and you got Antioch. Next thing you know, Antioch's launching M's to the nations. Why? Because it's implicit in us as image bearers of God redeemed by the gospel to preach the gospel. That makes sense? So I want you to understand we all have a mandate to think how are we going to get the gospel into the dark recesses of Roman Floyd County. You've heard me say these numbers. Haven't done it in a long time. There's 97,000 people in our county. It depends on the demographic. Like the up, updated stuff, just over 100,000 people maybe in our county. In the city, like 33,000, 35,000 people in the city limits, but 100,000 people in our county. If you do the math on the churches in Roman Floyd County, you got under 20,000 people. And depending on how fudging the numbers are. And some, some minister, a lot of people do some ministerial counting. They look at them, oh, there are 300 people here today. Negative, right? There's some ministerial counting going on in some of those numbers. We might be under 10,000 people out of 100 attending any local church. I'm just let that sit on you for a second, uncomfortably in silence. Is it because the gospel is not powerful? No. There are a lot of strategic, practical, personal problems in that equation. Some of, the, some of it is we are not there. They are not in our lives. And there are sociological and economic reasons for that. Some of it racial. And I know that's going to make some people mad. But that's fine. You can leave. The truth of the matter is, there's a gospel mandate in a lost city, in a lost county, that's broken and hurting, waiting on this narrative to bring sense and order to their broke world. What are we waiting on? Right? And so I want us all to understand, it's not a function of your elders. It's not a function of bringing them to hear this. It's a function of all of us leaving this room and getting engaged in our city and inviting people to Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. Jesus took some fishermen and turned them into apostolic genii. Right? Jesus takes us and can turn us into that apostolic genius. I know genius is not a word. Genius is, is probably accurate. I should have wrote that in my notes because that's bad. But understand, we have a mandate to preach this gospel message and not hold it. Keep it. I mean, I mean, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? Don't hide the gospel. And I'm getting into evangelism. We'll do evangelism in a couple weeks, so hang tight. Last application. As a result... Of growing deeper into the narrative of the gospel and engaging our call to preach the message. There's something miraculous that happens and it's called worship and song. I think you'll find consistent with the narrative of the gospel. That as people get to know the Lord. They live in a certain way. And, and there's a tendency out of their lips for song to spring forth. There's poetic expressions of the nature and character of God. Literarily, God gave us poetic and creative writing in order to download the memory. You remember songs like you can't remember other Bible passages. Why? Because it's written in a manner that God so wired you to receive. 
And he so moved in people that they would write song. The song of Moses, right? The song of Miriam. Like you got all these songs that happen at highs and lows in the people of God and they're recorded for us. And you got 150 of them right in the middle of your Bible called the Psalms. When we get to know the Lord and we begin to fit all of life up into the narrative of the gospel, you know what happens? Song happens. It just happens. God made sound and sound strung together mathematically makes music. And people following the Lord in the narrative write lyrics that fit up into it. And then we come and sing them. Because God is innately worthy of that worship. So what we're going to do? We're going to worship Him in song. Because He is worthy of that. So pray with me, then we're going to sing together. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you'll help us to be good agents of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. And Lord, your word says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, Lord, we believe that your message truly is powerful. It, 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 it is dynamite. It can blow up the most ardent worldview that stands opposed to the gospel. And it can gently keep us in line with the truth of the gospel. It's powerful. So we pray now that you will take that gospel message and do supernatural work in your people. We pray, Father, for ears that are hearing this right now that you would redeem, save, transform, bring to light, bring to life, bring wholeness and completion, bring correction for us when we're not walking in step with it or there's been something that's trashed. this peace that needs to get fit into the narrative of the gospel. So Lord, all those things, we pray that you would take the narrative of the good news of the kingdom of God and bring, bring rightness and wholeness out of it. And then let us worship well. We pray this in Jesus' name.